welcome to our third class in our 12-week series of the 5,000-Year Leap, where we're studying these 28 principles, these ideas, these ingredients that our founding fathers used to establish this country. And under these ideas and these principles uh, that were embedded in our founding documents, within 200 years, we literally put a man on the moon. I mean, up until then, for 500 millennia, we had basically, um, most of humanity had been using the same tools and the hoes and the plows and the ox and the cart and the spinning wheel. But uh, when this first free people of modern times was established under this self-government, what it did is it, it, it sparked you know, uh, creativity within them to innovate and to create when people were allowed to own their own labor and own their own property. And, and literally we took a 5,000 year leap and that is the name of our course study, the 5,000 year leap. And this is what those principles allowed the United States within the first hundred years to be able to produce over 50% of the world's wealth with only having 6% of the world's population. And so, yes, have we strayed from these principles in the last 100 years, 150 years? We have. And you can see we don't do so well when we veer away from these founding principles in our, our, in the, our documents there. But as we come and we join together each week and we arm ourselves with the knowledge of these powerful 28 ideas, we will be a part of, you know, uh, knowing these proven solutions and, and it will change the way we speak. We'll speak with greater confidence and with strength and with authority to kind of um, counter or dispel some of the emotionalism and hate and lies that are running rampant uh, in this day and age. So I hope everyone has their student manual book. I really like the student manual book the best because it's fill in the blank. The keys are at the back. And what it does is it prepares you to maybe someday have a cottage meeting in your home and to teach the 5,000 year leap. You know, all you'd have to do is read two or three paragraphs, fill in the blank with the, uh, you know, the five, six, 10 people in your uh, group, and then stop every three to four to five paragraphs and talk about, well, what does this mean today? What's a practical application? So as you have the student edition, you can be writing notes and prepare you to teach, maybe just to teach your children or your grandchildren, but maybe to have a, you know, a neighborhood cottage meeting or study group. And so the first uh, uh, two weeks ago, Al primarily taught the bulk of the class on how the founding fathers had this monumental task of establishing this first free people in the balanced center, just enough government to avoid anarchy, but not too much government uh, to have a tyrannical rule. And, and really our founding fathers, they, they uh, formed this government in the balanced center and they modeled it after what they saw that representative government of Moses in Genesis and Deuteronomy and Exodus. And then, you know, they, as they study the Anglo-Saxons, which many people believe were descendants of the, the scattered uh, tribes of Israel and the Assyrian uh, and the Babylonians around 700 to 500 BC came and scattered those tribes. And many believe that those uh, remnants and uh, ancestors were the Anglo-Saxons because they had the, the same um, people's law that uh, was found in Moses's uh, government when he led the three million across the wilderness. And so he, uh, we uh, last uh, the last week we started off 
on our principles. So we're going to study principles three and four tonight. But last week, we talked about principle number one. I love these four. To me, these are the foundational principles. Last week, we talked about how the most reliable basis for strong, sound government and good human relations is based on natural law, God's law. And that Roman ancient thinker, Cicero, is where the founding fathers you know, got that idea. Cicero talked about natural law even before you know Jesus Christ was born. And Cicero, I believe, uh, lived from about, what, 106 B.C., to 46 BC. And he just logically said, look, there had to have been a supreme being, a creator of this earth, and his order is the best way to live. Therefore, there must be a code of right and wrong conduct according to the supreme creator. The creator's order of the universe is what Cicero called it. And then we talked about how principle two talked about the best way to maintain this form of government, this constitutional republic of self-government of, of the, by the voice of the people was the only way we could maintain this kind of government was if the people remain morally strong and virtuous and tied into the creator's order of things, his natural law. And so principle number two today, or three, excuse me, let's open our book, says okay, well, what is the best way to get people to stay morally strong and virtuous? Well, our founders believed it was to elect virtuous leaders. And so Samuel Adams, who was known as the father of the American Revolution and who was the cousin to our second president, John Adams, said this, but neither the wisest constitution nor the wisest laws will secure liberty and happiness of the people whose manners are universally corrupt he, therefore, is the truest friend to the liberty of his country who tries most to promote its virtue and who, so far as his power and influence will extend, will not suffer a man to be chosen into any office of power and trust who is not a wise and virtuous man, wise and virtuous under natural law. I know that's what they were implying there. And, uh, you know, a, a favorite scripture of that day could be found in Proverbs 29, where they understood that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. Are we seeing that today with uh, in the past, you know, several decades with uh, laws that have been against godly law. Remember Cicero said legislation that goes against natural law is a scourge to humanity. So you think of, you know, abortion being legalized or or the transgender policies of the day or same-sex marriage or, you know, promoting racial division through critical race theories being taught in the school systems. This, you can see how this has caused confusion uh, amongst um, our, our rising generations and with, within the families. We've, we've mourned when the society has, has suffered when we veered away from natural law. And so James Madison here says, hey, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If, and if angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. But unfortunately, we know this utopian dream is not possible. So what our founding fathers wanted to do was to develop a spirit of public virtue by having leaders of strong private 
virtue and they wanted to kind of create a new uh, kind of uh, Freeman aristocracy or a natural aristocracy instead of the aristocracy that they had known over in Europe where you know people rose to high positions, not on uh, personal merit, but on their ancestry, their family lineage, or their wealth. And Al is going to uh, talk about this, um, Jefferson's natural aristocracy. So Al is coming uh, from Utah. He's had some business Very meetings good. there. So take it away, sweetheart, Very in your good. hotel room. Thank you, thank you, Jeline. That was very, that was an awesome introduction. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be on the Zoom with you, even though we're a while. I, I, there's a huge gulf between us. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're way, you're in DC. It's cold here. It snowed this morning. It's freezing. Oh. Well, but, one uh, thing about me being us being in different parts, you can't kick me under the table because sometimes you know when I get too warm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about this natural aristocracy. And it's it's really pretty simple. It's let, let's find the best citizens and encourage them to accept major roles in public life. Let, let's go get the cream of the crop. Let's go find those individuals who have demonstrated qualities of leadership and then draft them into service. And you look at George Washington three times. I mean, he would much rather have spent his time in Mount Vernon and being with his sweet wife, but three times he was drafted out. He was asked to come and serve his country and didn't want to, but felt a sense of duty. And, and he clearly was one of the best and brightest at that time. What was the third time, honey? When was during the Revolutionary well, the, It was the Revolutionary War and then the Constitutional Convention. Well, and then president. Gotcha. So the three things we're looking for in an individual is virtue, which Julian highlighted so very beautifully, talent, which we take for granted, and then patriotism, people who actually love the country. It's so, it would be so nice. I, I think, Julian, if we did a survey of members of Congress right now, all 435 of them, and asked them, we put them in a room and said, how many of you all know how many articles there are in the Constitution and how many amendments? I, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think that a majority would actually know. And, and that's, that's kind of sad. So as I indicated before, virtue, talent, patriotism. There is, Julene highlighted beautifully, there's an artificial aristocracy that people who obtain high offices because of their wealth, their station in life, or some kind of special influence. And Jefferson said it should be the goal of the whole nation to use education in any means possible to stimulate and encourage citizens who clearly exhibit, exhibit some special talent to be part of public service, to have people who own businesses that would take time from their businesses to come and run for office and then serve for a time, share their expertise and talent, and then go back to their business, go back to their homes. Teachers, uh, people who have different skill sets that they can bring to bear and serve in Congress, and then serve for a time certain, and then go back, not stay till they're 80 or 90 years old, but to serve for a little bit, and then go back and allow other people and individuals to, to serve. And so Jefferson also said he thought one of the greatest threats to the new government would be the day when the best qualified people refuse to serve in public office. 
Mm. We're just not getting the cream of the crop. I had an opportunity to go up on the hill recently to see a friend of mine who gave testimony before the House Education Committee, and it was on the recent Supreme Court decision regarding uh, racial preferences. And he spoke in favor of the fact that we, we need to focus on helping families, strengthen families so that there's a mom and a dad in a home that can help prepare kids of any color to be able to compete and to ascend to college and be accepted in the college based on their skill set and their ability to perform. And so it starts in the home and you could see members of Congress. It was so interesting to watch the disdain they had for his message. And, and I, I was really taken aback by the lack of, and I hope this doesn't come across as though I'm greater than, than they, but just the lack of intelligence if I can be blunt, I mean, you have members of Congress that, that read questions prepared by their staff, which is fine, but not even listen to the answers, go on to the next question, grandstand, you know, create opportunities that they can go back and put something on Twitter that they embarrassed someone, a witness, someone who's volunteering to come up and share their opinion. And it was, it was really interesting to, to behold and kind of, kind of disappointing, to be honest with you. So, one of the things that the founders were very adamant about was making public office an honor rather than a position of profit. Benjamin Franklin has several quotes in the 5,000 year lead that I would encourage you to go back to read. And, but John Adams said this, he said, and, and he dedicated his life to public service. I do not curse the day when I engage in public affairs. I cannot repent of anything I ever did conscientiously and from a sense of duty. I never engaged in public affairs for my own interests pleasure, envy, jealousy, avarice, or ambition, or even the desire of fame. If any of these had been my motive, my conduct would have been very different. In every considerable transaction of my public life, I have invariably acted according to my best judgment, and I can look up to God for the sincerity of my intentions. What a beautiful, awesome statement. Not there for public fame, not there for to be to become rich let's let's think about today and who some of the members of congress are who are there to be popular who are there to be populist who are there to make money it's so interesting to see how many members of congress who end up going there who don't have much money and then end up leaving quite prosperous and have several homes even homes million dollar homes outside of their district i won't say any names maxine waters but Anyway, you all get the point. Let's look at uh, what, what uh, Franklin said. He said, place before the eyes of such men a post of honor that shall at the same time be a place of profit, and they will move heaven and earth to obtain it. These are prophetic statements by Adams and Franklin. So Jalene's going to talk to us about how to get reelected, how to stay in office. Okay, uh, Benjamin Franklin was almost prophetic in the way he saw this. He said, the more the people are discontented with the oppression of taxes, the greater the need the prince or the politician, let's say, has of money to distribute amongst his partisans and pay the troops that are to suppress all resistance and enable him to plunder at pleasure. So what Benjamin Franklin is saying is, look, the way 
you know, these politicians are going to be tempted to stay into office is they're going to tap build their coffers so they can take the money and make more programs to, to give out to the people. So they're going to tax the people and then, you know, make special goodie programs and, and, you know, release the goodies to their constituents. Therefore, the constituents might forget temporarily of all the high taxes because they're getting some of the goodies and they'll reelect that politician, all right, who, who was the means of you know raising the taxes and growing the government so it's big and fat so they can you know hand out the goodies, therefore ensuring his reelect. That that's why it's so important, Julene, if you all have an opportunity to take the Healing of America seminars, because it goes through in detail how that was done, how amendments were added to the Constitution that took power from we the people and put it in Washington, DC, the 16th and the 17th Amendments that were added to the Constitution in 1913 and the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 has opened the door to this kind of behavior. Yeah. So those Healing of America seminars are 16 one-hour seminars. And seminar number two, uh, for four weeks, we just systematically go through the Constitution from the viewpoint of the Founding Fathers and then what has been added since the Founding Fathers and how it disrupted the checks and balances uh, uh, that the Founders intended. So put that on your bucket list of things to study is that Healing of America. And we're going to offer that class uh, live again starting January 28th. Our young, beautiful uh, mama, Tyler Otta, is going to teach that, I believe, mid-January, that Healing of America. But all of these classes are online. And I think they're the classes that maybe you and I, Al, taught, or maybe I just taught. Uh, but anyways, they're there. You can find them now. So Benjamin Franklin said, look, they're will be a natural inclination. There is a natural inclination in mankind towards kingly government, you know, to take care of us. And it, because it gives more of the appearance of equality among citizens and that they will be safe and that we are alike. The king was going to, you know, take care of us kind of thing. And so that that's not what our founders wanted. They wanted, you know, men or, and women that would serve out of duty for time and then then go home. We're seeing leaders today that are making a, you know, a career that are serving decades in office and we're making it alluring with the salaries and the fame and the fortune that goes along with it. So Franklin cites an excellent example of, um, you know, a civic duty of an admirable example in England of the high sheriff, it's called. And um, Benjamin Franklin said, it's each county in England has these high sheriffs and it's respectable men principal gentlemen of the county, but not a real profitable uh, job. And so they do good and they serve their county and, and they're thought of well uh, within the communities of amount of their time without, you know, hardly any monetary, monetary uh, compensation. And it kind of makes me think of, um, there was three presidents, United States presidents throughout our history that didn't, actually four, because we're going to, well, actually, no, three, that didn't take a salary, or if they did take a salary, they donated it back to uh, governmental agencies. It was Herbert Hoover, J.F. Kennedy, and President uh, Donald Trump. So um, President Trump made $400,000 a year as the president. So $1.6 million he donated back to the Department of Education, to um, the National Park Services. And it's interesting that our wonderful George Washington here, 
um, did not take any salary when he was a, a general. Uh, you know what his salary was? What was his salary? Well, I know when he became president, it was twenty five thousand a year. Yep. But he didn't. He didn't take a salary for eight years when he was the general, uh, except just for reimbursements. And the only reason he took that twenty five thousand dollars a year when he became president, he didn't want to. But he felt at some point some presidents might need that money, and he didn't want to set the precedent that the jobs should be done for nothing. So he took the twenty five thousand um, uh, dollar, you know, salary as as president. So this is me and uh, President Washington uh, on Sunday or Saturday night. I was at an event at Mount Vernon, and I took a little picture with him. And I told him that I, I teach some of his great inspirational stories. And, and he said, he gave me a warning. He said, please make sure you use my original words because my words are not being told correctly or being interpreted correctly. And I thought that, and he looked at me in the eye and he said that several times. And I said, I, I said, President Washington, you can be assured I'm using your original words, you know, oftentimes, mo mostly. Uh, and so he was, that was kind of a fun event. I'll tell you uh, what that event was in just a minute. So um, anyways, okay, let's see the next slide. So um, Benjamin Franklin was such a good example of, of working clear up to the end. He was the oldest delegate during the Constitutional Convention. I think he was 81. 80, 80, he was 81. 81. He, so he was the oldest and probably the busiest. So at this time, there's a wonderful book. We'd highly recommend it called The Real Benjamin Franklin. He was known as the Golden uh, Patriot. And um, he had, you know, uh, wrote a book of virtues and he would keep a checklist of how he was uh, living up to these virtues each night. And so modern historians have done a real number in trying to, you know, portray him as some, you know, pervert with illegitimate children and a womanizer and so forth but here he was known as the golden patriot the father of morality so this is an easy read i would recommend getting that and putting that in your uh, library uh, freedom. Sem seminar three we go into some detail when there's a study that was done there was more money spent going after franklin's reputation than all the other founders combined they went after him the hardest mm -hmm because of his virtue if they could make him out to be a sexual deviant pervert you know we wouldn't study his life or want to pattern or emulate him but he is such worthy of emulation so he, this is at 81 this was his schedule a friend of his asked what his typical day was and he said well i start at 6 a.m so he was a businessman still working at 81 he uh, was a member of the of Congress, and he also was chairman of the Pennsylvania Committee on Safety that was providing and gathering the gunboats and the stockades and uh, munitions in preparation for the upcoming uh, conflict. This was uh, in 1775-76. So he said, well, uh, by 6 a.m., I'm in my committee of safety until 9 a.m., to which I sit until 4 p.m., uh, doing the work of, of Congress. And so he definitely put his money where his mouth was. So what was the formula for producing these kind of leaders, a George Washington, a Thomas Jefferson, a Benjamin Franklin? You know, I think that the answers will be found in their writings themselves in the this 5,000 year leap book. 
there's so many quotations from our founders and their words are powerful. You can feel the strength and the conviction and the virtue in their words. You can tell through their quotations and that have been woven all throughout these principles that we'll be studying the next 10 weeks, that these men had been carefully taught in their respective churches and families and schools and elsewhere, and that they had a comprehensive understanding of the basic beliefs. Remember we talked last week, they had shared values because they were studying from the same inspired sources, these ancient thinkers of, of Cicero and Montesquieu and, and Blackstone and, and, um, and the Bible primarily. And they were positive believers in a broad spectrum of fundamental precepts, which they called self-evident truths. They were seekers of truth. And as they studied history, they could discern truth and God's hand and true principles. Uh, in fact, um, let's see the next slide, honey. These men, uh, there's a wonderful scripture in Exodus, Jethro, uh, who is the son-in-law of Moses. I think gave this advice to Moses at the time when they were, you know, leading the, the um, Israelites across the wilderness. Moreover, he said, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens. This is when Moses set up his government where he heard only the hard cases and that most of the problems were solved at the local levels where there were captains of 10 families and captains of 50 families and have them be these kind of men. And that's who our great founding fathers were. They were these kind of men. So how do we know today exactly what kind of men are elected, uh, men, and, uh, men and women are? What kind of beliefs and values do they hold? Well, you know, I really think... We have to put in the work. We have to go to those, you know, town hall meetings. We have to go to the meet the candidate nights. We have to invite them when they're running for office. They're willing to come to your home if you can tell them you have 20, 30, 40 people in your neighborhood that, that want to vet them and want to, you know, hear what they stand for. You have to attend those school board meetings or city councils or state legislator uh, committee meetings. And, and when they open it up for Q&A, then be prepared to ask some questions like, oh, what are the leading features of the constitution that you think are broken that need to be restored? Or what are your thoughts, you know, about uh, uh, religious liberties or critical race theory or, or parental rights or, uh, you know, or you can say, uh, how how do you intend on on fixing parts of the Constitution that are broken, and and see them score, see if they even know, you know, the Constitution well enough to to talk to that question, or you could ask them a question by teaching a principle, like principle number four that we're going to move on to. You could say. You know, our founding fathers knew that without religion, this republic couldn't be maintained. So what are you doing to protect our religious liberties in our community? Or you could say, uh, use principle 21, uh, our founding fathers knew that strong local self-government was the keystone to preserving freedom. So what are you doing so we can have more local control in our state or in our community. You know, it's always good to ask a question by teaching the principal first, then asking them what are they going to do about it. So uh, on Saturday, we, me and Debbie um, Kurlitis, who's the vice president of Moms for America, we went to an event, uh, Dr. Ben Carson's event at Mount Vernon in Virginia. 
And uh, Dr. Carson has started the American Cornerstone Institute. It's a wonderful organization. And um, he spoke to uh, the hundreds of people that were there and he said, look, Dr. Carson said, what is uh, missing is not common sense or decency today amongst the citizens, but courage. We are lacking courage to stand up and ask these questions of our leaders. And so he honored uh, uh, some men that were examples of courageous leaders. Let's see the next slide, honey. He um, honored uh, uh, in that one picture is the CEO of Goya Beans. Um, his name is Robert Yunani, Yunanu. Yunanu. I'm a whole food plant-based eater, so I buy a lot of beans. And uh, several years ago, he came forth and, and he's a, you know, a wealthy, very successful company. And he, um, put his support in the ring for uh, President Trump. And he got so much backlash. I mean, people were trying to cancel him and shut him down. And, you know, uh, people were saying to boycott Goya beans. And he said, instead of a boycott, people came out and it turned into a boycott. We never sold more beans, you know, when I was standing for who I thought was going to be best for the country. But the interesting thing about Mr. Yunanu was how much he talked about God. So he, re he received a, a reward, uh, an award that evening. And he said, the, the, the solution to our problems in our country is we got to get God back into our country. And he talked about how the Holy Spirit, we need to call upon the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, that we need to pray for each other. We need to pray for our enemies. We need to unite. And then that very tall gentleman in the next picture is the governor of Alaska. His name is Mike Dunleavy, and he was put into office in 2018, and he's a former teacher and superintendent. And he, um, Ben Carson, in his American Cornerstone Institute, has a beautiful education wing uh, and a program called Little Patriots. And it's it, it has lots of resources to teach children the stories and miracles of American little cartoons. And this governor of Alaska has put forth a law that the Little Patriots program from Ben, ben Carson is to be taught in all the elementaries in Alaska. So these two men, that is courageous leadership. And so let's see the next um, slide, honey. So uh, it's interesting, yesterday, the new speaker of the house was, we find we got a new speaker and not many people know about him, but isn't it interesting, here he is um, uh, on the floor of the house praying, I believe that was yesterday, congratulations to the new speaker. And then in this other uh, little um, clip there, it says him quoting, he is a man of God. And he said, I believe that scripture, this is our new speaker of the house, Mike Johnson from Louisiana. He said, I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you. And God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. Now, I think these are pretty good examples, don't you, honey, of modern day uh, uh, virtuous leaders. Okay, so um, I'm going to turn it over to you to get into our fourth principle. All right, without religion, the government of free people cannot be maintained without religion. Religion is there to help the people live moral lives so that the country and the government can prosper, particularly if we put people in office 
who are also striving to be moral and religious. Are we all perfect? Are we angels? No, of course not. But we want to pick and choose leaders who are just who are trying to do those things. And so the founders knew early on that we had to have a strong system of religion in our country. So in 1787, even before the Constitutional Convention, the Congress got together and passed the Northwest Ordinance. And they passed this because this Northwest Territory, territory 1787, these individual states were going to come into the Union, and they wanted to come into the Union on equal footing. So they outlined some criteria for them to be able to do that. And in Article 3 of the Northwest Ordinance, it says religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall ever forever be encouraged. So they were they wanted religion, morality, and knowledge taught in the schools. And Julene will elaborate more on the aspects of religion that they wanted in the schools that's common to all sound religions, but they wanted these things taught in school. They also prohibited slavery from occurring in these areas. The founders knew early on they had to, they, they couldn't get rid of slavery right away. So Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution gave them a 20 years to phase it out. And if they could keep it contained in the South, that it would eventually die out. And of course, that didn't happen. Uh, slavery grew and it caused the Civil War in 1861. So let's talk about religion, morality, and knowledge. So religion, a fundamental system of beliefs concerning man's relationship with deity, with God, and how they relate to one another, basically captures the first two great commandments, loving God and then loving your neighbor. Morality, let's, let's talk about a standard behavior that distinguishes between right and wrong. You can do that in the classroom with kids. You can have prayer in the classroom with kids and talk about God and that he's He's watching all of us and and he he's seeing our behavior and how we act and that the definition of character and integrity is behaving the right way, even when no one is looking. And so we can talk about right and wrong with our kids and then knowledge, reading, writing, arithmetic, talk about the leading features of the Constitution, history and science. Unfortunately, our schools today, they're teaching everything but these things, hence school and school testing scores are going down. We've got kids graduating from college who can't read at grade level. It, it's probably the worst, Julian, it has been in years. That I, it's, it's unconscionable that we're graduating kids from high school that are not sound when it comes to reading, writing, and, and arithmetic. They're just being passed through the process. They're being taught to be social justice warriors as opposed to preparing them for life. And Abraham Lincoln, a prophetic statement, he said when he was president, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. H have we seen that occur? And, and so the adversary knows that. So seminar three in Healing of America goes into some very profound detail regarding how the education system was changed and it was infiltrated back in the early 1900s, Columbia's Teachers College, John Dewey, changing the how we teach our children 
And those, those seeds were planted back in the mid 1800s with Horace Mann. John Dewey took those thoughts and principles and transformed them into a, a system of education. And, and the adversary is very, very patient. Let's plant the seeds with our youth and we can change government, we can change society. Okay, Jalene, back to you to talk about the five fundamental, Franklin's five fundamentals of all sound religion. Okay, you know, honey, I remember so well for so many years in our morning <clears throat> devotional with our five children, how you would tell them that if they don't have God with them, they will not be as smart. They won't make as smart of decisions. They won't do as well in school. They won't remember things that when you have God with you, he brings to mind. He helps recall things that you need to know and you just make <clears throat> better decisions. And so when we saw God pulled out of the school systems, when prayer was pulled out, when, you know, religious clubs were pulled out, we saw systematically the scores of um, the schools begin to go down when they didn't, you know, start their little day evoking, you know, God in the classroom. And, and we've seen that played out in the scores in America. So Thomas Jefferson, gosh, I wish I had some water. Thomas Jefferson said, that, you know, the teaching of religion in schools should be restricted to universal principles that all religions, all sound religions can agree on. So what are those universal sound fundamentals of religion? Benjamin Franklin really is the one that came up with them. He said, here is my creed. He said, I believe in one God, the universe, the creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped that the most acceptable service we render to him is in doing good to his other children and that the souls of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental points of sound religion. And it was these fundamental points that our founding fathers rallied around as the universal uh, uh, um, tenets of sound religion. And just the fact that they acknowledged there were sound religions meant that there might have, they considered unsound religions. And I think what would it be an unsound religion? Maybe atheism, humanism, communism, socialism, wokeism today. And so what are the fundamental points of religion that they wanted taught in the school systems that they agreed on that this was like the universal religion, their religion of America is what they called it. Number one, that there exists a creator. This is what they wanted taught in the school classrooms, a creator who made all things and mankind should recognize and worship him. And that the creator has revealed a moral code of behavior for happy living, which distinguishes right from wrong this right conduct from wrong, wrong conduct that Cicero talked about. And we will learn that principle nine says, where do we find this code of behavior? We find it, the founder said, in the divine laws, meaning scripture. And so number three, and we'll talk about that in about two weeks. The number three, this fundamental um, uh, tenet that the creator holds mankind responsible for the way that we treat one another and that all mankind will live beyond this life, that there will be some sort of eternal realm and that in the next life, mankind, we're gonna be held accountable. We're gonna have to stand before this supreme creator of the universe and explain our con conduct in this one. Now, if you lived by these kind of tenets, that would probably change 
the way you live and some of the choices that you would make if we were teaching, you know, not only these points within the four walls of our home, but in the school systems. Imagine, you know, I don't think we would have some of the confusion, anxiety, and depression that we're seeing amongst our young people today. Imagine if you went to the school board and you told them, you know, you explained to them our founding fathers wanted morality and a religion taught uh, in the school systems according to the Northwest Ordinance. And that this is the very reason why we need to remove some of the, you know, sexually explicit books or the uh, sexual orientation curriculum that's being taught today. And, and tell them they wanted, you know, educate the leaders, give them some of these quotes, look at some of these statements from our founding fathers in relation to these universal tenets. Thomas Jefferson called these basic beliefs the principles in which God has united us all. Samuel Adams said the religion of America is the religion of all mankind. John Adams said the general principles on which the American civilization, that these, gen that these principles were the general principles upon which our civilization has been founded. And then the great um, uh, Washington, General Washington, President Washington looked upon these fundamental precepts of religion and morality as the cornerstone of our government, of all the dispensations and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. We need them both. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail to the exclusion of religious principles. And he gave President Washington a solemn warning um, because in France, just before he wrote this uh, in his farewell address in 1776, he had seen the French, Revolu French Revolution and how promoters of atheism and amorality had seized control of that country in a shocking bloodbath of wild excesses and violence. And he could see, you know, what transpired when uh, when government gets in the hands of those kinds of people. And so are the Frenchman Alex de Tocqueville, living through that uh, French Revolution, came over to America and wanted to know why this little country, this new little country was doing so well. So Al's going to talk about Good, about thank that. you. Let me talk about Alexis de Tocqueville. So he was a French judge, came to America in 1831 to just really study our criminal system because he wanted to know why the jails were not filled with people. Because in France and in Europe, when a new political party comes into power, the old guys, in order to remove that threat, they put them in jail. They charge them with crimes and put them in jail so that there's no opposition. And he came over to America to study why that was the case that was different in America, which is so interesting. So he asked the people, well, well, what's where's your government? And the people said, well, we're the government. We're the government. Because in Europe, it had been popular to teach that religion and liberty were enemies. And he found religion. So he started beginning to start studying the government in America that produced the result that he had seen that they weren't that the jails were not filled up. And here's a beautiful quote from him from his book, Democracy in America. On my arrival to the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed there, the more I perceived the great political consequences resulting 
from the new state of things. Like I said before, in Europe, tension between religion and government because the religious leaders were running the government and it was one church and everybody had to adhere to those leadership principles that they they expounded. So that there was there was always tension there. Religion in America takes no direct part in the government of society, which is different than what he saw in Europe, but it must be regarded as the first of their political institutions. I do not know whether all Americans have sincere faith in their religion, for who can such search the human heart? But I am certain that they hold it to be indispensable to the maintenance of Republican institutions. This opinion is not peculiar to a class of citizens or to a party, but it belongs to the whole nation and to every rank of society. So the government was established, constitution written in 1787, George Washington is made the president. 30, 40 years later, de Tocqueville shows up and he sees the results of religion, morality, and knowledge being taught in the schools. And it was so interesting. Here's here's a statement that really should guide us until today. He says, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. So we see here what's going on in the world today, all the turmoil and chaos, because America is not respected as they used to be. We're not revered. It used to be our greatest export was our constitution. Now, instead, we, we put pressure on the United Nations to put pressure on African countries, for example, to accept the LGBTQ agenda in order to get funding. And instead of promoting and, and exporting values and morals that are based on godly law, we're promoting things that are counter to that, which is the, been to the detriment of our country and to the world as we can see the results of that. So de Tocqueville saw something very interesting. He said that he saw that the the clergy didn't take they seemed that all clergy seemed anxious to maintain a separation of church and state but he nevertheless observed that they collectively they had a great influence in the morals and customs of the people so the clergy was there to teach the people religion teach the people morality so that the nation would prosper and that the government would do well so american law permits he or she to do as they please, but religion prevents them from doing something rash or unjust. Does that make sense? So the law allows us, we have freedom to do as we please, but because we're religious people, we will, we will take a step back or we will think twice before doing something that is untoward or unjust to another person or to commit a crime. That's why morality has to be at the heart of self-government. Let's see here. So back when the America was first formed, one of the things that the founders saw as problematic because of their experience in Europe was that some of the states had a religion that was established in the state or denomination. 
and you had to be of a particular faith, say in Connecticut, you had to belong to the Congregational Church to run for office. So how did the founders respond to this? They didn't put it in code for the federal government to direct the states. They use they use persuasion and they use encouragement to get these states to be respecters of all religion, all sound religion, to accept the American religion as Samuel Adams highlighted and also Ben Franklin. So these are the different faiths that that basically were the established religions or denominations. And slowly wow. over time, those things dissipated and they allowed everyone, all faiths and religions to be part of the American fabric. Okay. Are you, are you passing it over to me? Yes, I'm passing it over to you. A long pause for you to jump right in. Yes. <laughs> this this is this is the 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 first amendment that I was referring to that the founders stood behind as opposed to directing the states. They knew that the federal government should not be involved in that. Yeah. Okay, Julie. Okay, so a uh, Supreme Court Justice Story, he was known as one of the greatest scholars to serve on the Supreme Court from 1812 until 1845, about 30 years. He too said that the founders uh, felt, and he, as, as he did, that the federal government should be absolutely excluded from any authority in the field of settling questions when it came to religions. He said, let those religions in the various states work out their strifes or jealousies or whatever conflict that they may have. It is up to the states to determine these things. The whole power over the subject of religion is left exclusively to state governments to be acted upon according to their own sense of justice and state constitutions. And, and hence you have our very first freedoms, our very first amendment in the constitution our founders wanted to make it clear that the federal government, that federal state, okay? Remember, there's a difference between the federal state and individual states. They wanted the federal state, Congress, to make no laws respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Madison took that exact uh, same uh, stand where he says, there is not a shadow of right in the general government to intermeddle with religion. Its least interference with it would be a most flagrant usurpation. Jefferson took an identical position to that in the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, where he makes it clear that not only should the Congress and federal government, but the federal judiciary systems uh, should likewise be prohibited from intermeddling with religious matters within the state. Right. So when they so, say Congress, they really meant the, the entire federal government. Is that That's what you just said. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So when Thomas Jefferson was serving in the Virginia legislature over his state, he would eventually go on to become the governor of Virginia before he became uh, the third president. He initiated uh, bills to have a day of fasting and prayer. But when he became president over the general state of the union, there was a group of people that came to him from Danbury, Connecticut, wanting him to uh, get involved in a, a, a skirmish that they were having about religion in Connecticut. And that's where he issued his famous quote, let's see it out, where he said, 
that uh, there should be a, an erection of the wall of separation between church and state, meaning federal state. He said that is absolutely essential for a free society. But what has transpired through the years, particularly in the last 100 years, the last uh, 50, 60, 70 years, that the courts used this separation of church and state, meaning federal state, the federal government, and, and they, the courts used this as an excuse to begin to meddle into religious uh, liberties arising within states. And actually the, the government, the, the Supreme Court, the courts, forced states to take that same hands-off position towards religious matters, uh, even, even though this was a restriction originally applied only to the federal government. This is what uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson meant by a separation of church and state, the federal state, not individual states. And so here we see the Supreme Court in 1950 taking prayer out and removing, uh, you know, Bible reading and religious clubs and that kind of thing, which was the complete opposite of, you know, that they, they did not want the courts or the federal government to intermeddle within a state issues on religion. And just about six years ago, we saw the courts get involved at uh, a coach in Washington who had prayer after the football games at the 50-yard line for any player that wanted to join him. And, um, you know, he was taken to court. He was fired, and the court said that he was establishing religion, and that eventually the Supreme Court, I think, last year overturned that. But that man was fired from his job, and his, his you know, career was, was ruined. And so um, that was a, a distortion of what uh, Thomas Jefferson meant. And so we can see that um, Jefferson and Madison wanted all religions to be encouraged in order to promote the moral fiber and religious tone of the people. They knew that, it, you know, in order to maintain this new government that they were going to give us, these people needed religion in their life to help them stay virtuous and morally strong. And Thank so you. obviously, yes, no, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm, there was a statement I wanted to read that really highlights what you just talked about. There's a separation of church and state, but not a separation of state and religion. That's right out of the 5,000-year lead that I think you should underline. Because we want separation of church and state, but not state and religion, which I think is a beautiful, beautiful statement. I should have I should have made a slide for that. That's okay, honey. You're doing... Al has been doing my PowerPoints. Normally our daughter, she's out of the country, does our PowerPoints. But Al, you've been doing a really good job doing <laughs> my PowerPoint. It's been the bane of his existence the last couple of hours. <laughs> to, you know, make the big bucks and provide for the family and do mother's PowerPoints. Thank you so much, sweetheart. But, you know, I mean, clearly, the uh, how how... How could we have religion shoring up the moral fiber if our country, if there was supposed to be an impenetrable wall between church and state on the state level that the courts have ruled on in recent decades? If Jefferson's wall uh, was obviously, it, it, he's, it, in the book it says, Jefferson's wall was intended for the federal government and the Supreme Court application of this metaphor to the state's is is grossly incorrect and against what our founding fathers and, and Thomas Jefferson intended when he said that. 
And um, in, in Thomas Jefferson's second inaugural address, he once again encouraged a policy of encouraging religious institutions of all kinds because it was in the public interest to use their influence to provide it provided religion the moral stability needed for good government and the happiness of mankind. And so, um, and it's interesting, Thomas Jefferson was especially proud in his town in Charlottesville, Virginia, that in the courthouse on Sunday, uh, the courthouse that was used, you know, to do the business of the town on the weekdays, on the weekends, it was used as a temple. And there were four religions in his town and they took turns rotating. They got one Sunday a month to hold their services, but everyone from town attended all the services because they wanted to go to church. And he loved how they all met together and sang together and listened with attention and devotion to each other's preachers. And, you know, one can't help but ask the, the modern Supreme Court today, where is the wall of separation between church and state? when that courthouse that he uh, used in his town was approved for as a common temple in their community of all the religious sects of the village to which Jefferson was, was proud. And he knew that had a strengthening uh, force in, in his community. And so I, so there you go, um, everyone. This, these are our foundational principles that I oftentimes when people are running to and fro and so depressed and wanting to know what the solution to all the problems is, I go back to, we got to get God back in the game. We got to get back to, uh, you know, adhering to the natural law, which our, our, our country was founded on. This is where our founders knew our government would be its best. People would get along the best if we were, uh, you know, living under uh, natural law, this divine law that can be found in holy writ. And that, you know, the only way that we can look to natural law is if we are good ourselves, if we're morally strong and virtuous. And the best way we stay morally strong and virtuous is to make sure we're putting men and women that are morally stable and strong in office so that they will legislate laws that are in accordance to natural law. And we can't have this kind of tone and characteristics of the citizens unless, you know, people are free to practice their religions in, in all areas and to have these religious liberties of right and wrong conduct. That's the only way our founding fathers felt that, that this country, this new government could be maintained. I think these four principles out of these 28 principles are foundational. They're compelling. I think we have our greatest success, not only in our homes and our marriages, but in our communities and nations when we're continually going back and reminding people of these core foundational principles, this adherence to the creator's order of things, his laws. And so, um, and as we, as we write these little principles in our heart, it will be natural to stay anchored in hope, to continue to look to God for our deliverance and solutions, not to government, not to the president of the United States, not to a program to solve our problems. And we'll teach these, these ideas to our children and our grandchildren as we make family time a high priority. And as we continue to study, I mean, I just have to commend you for showing up every Thursday night and you know, saying, Lord, I'm trying to figure it out. Help me expand my mind, help to educate me so I can shore up my children and my grandchildren, my communities. And then as you get on your knees and you pray at night, you'll say, Lord, what, what would you have me do? And then he will put in your heart 
Well, keep going to that class on Thursday. Maybe you want to start a class in your neighborhood. Maybe you need to start a little devotional where you teach 10 minutes a, a day to your children or send a little text to your grandchildren or attend some community meetings or run for office. God will put on your heart what your next step should be. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. Last week, I had a friend attend a function that Glenn Beck, are you familiar with Glenn Beck? He has the Blaze Network. And um, he was speaking to a large group of people. And he said to them, this was last Thursday, he said, we need to expect miracles, just like the ancient prophets did, just like our founding fathers did. And he said for the last two weeks, he had gone into his house of worship, praying and even fasting some days every single day wanting to know what he could say to his viewership because people are very anxious and have been for some time in the world and in our nation. And he said, this is Glenn Beck speaking last Thursday. He said, God put upon me to tell you that he has us, that he loves us, that we don't need to fear. It makes me think of the scripture. We just studied it this week in Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear but of love and power and a sound mind. So don't be afraid, but to hold steady and to continue to watch the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then um, he reminded those that were at the event that, hey, this is a covenanted nation. We are a covenanted people. And he said, I believe before I came to earth, I made covenants with God to, to fulfill certain assignments and purposes. And then he advised everyone there to renew the covenant with God themselves. And really, I think basically that covenant would be with God that you will be willing to stand by him and to stand on his side in these tumultuous days. So last Friday, Al and I were in New York City and we went to Federal Hall. It's right in the Wall Street area in Manhattan, lower Manhattan. And um, it it's, looks like it's being renovated a little bit because there was scaffolding and so forth. The other picture was this summer, um, uh, Al. And, and at Federal Hall here in New York City, this is where George Washington was sworn in in 1789 as the president. And he placed his hand on the Bible and the Bible, there's a museum in Federal Hall and you can get go into it and it's free. And you can actually see the Bible that George Washington put his hand on between um, chapters 49 and 50 of Genesis. And after he was sworn in, he said, so help me, God, will I do this? He's making a covenant with God. Al, why was it in between uh, Genesis 45? Well, 49, 49 talks about, and that's a good reading assignment for all of us, is that verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. So it has a reference to the 12 tribes, the, the scattering of Israel. And that the founders believed that in America, they were establishing a place to gather scattered Israel. Mm -hmm. That's why they based the Constitution on the first five books of Moses yeah. in the Old Testament. And and then it looks like, Al, you're you're putting your hand out like George Washington. Were you were you recovenanting there when I took that picture of you? What were you doing? Sure what I was doing, I was probably reaching to smack somebody. I, 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 some liberal was, I don't know. <laughs> hey now oh now keep it together here so so what the founders did after george washington was sworn in as president 
And they walked just a few blocks up and around the corner to St. Paul's Church, which is there today too. These are bucket lists, bucket places you need to go when you go to New York City. And there they made a covenant with God at church. Sworn in. And and what, what transpired at that church service in St. Paul's in 1789 now? So they basically the invoked the, Amer the American covenant and they referenced Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is another reading assignment for us that highlights that scattered Israelites will be gathered from all the nations when they remember the covenant. And it highlights in those verses the promises that Lord, the Lord, if we covenant with him, he promises to covenant with us and to do certain things, which, many of which involve prospering this nation and protecting us from outside influences. And, and from war and, and so on and so forth, if we keep our covenant with him. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we always tell our kids, if you make covenants with God, you can you can take his promises to the bank. He always comes through. I mean, that is that is the one, you know, divine being you want to covenant with. Because when you enter into a you know, covenantal relationship with God, he will always come through if we do our part. And so look, you know, we if we follow the pattern of the Revolutionary War, where it's only 3% stood on the side for the colonists, and they still won the war against, you know, the greatest army and navy that England, that the world ever saw, the English Navy and Army, that if, if there's just enough of us that will stand on that wall and covenant to stand on the side, of God and for his laws, I truly believe it will justify the heavens, justify God to come forth and heal our land like he promises in 2 Chronicles 7 14. And so that's our challenge tonight. What kind of covenant are, are you have you entered into or are willing to enter into? Because when you covenant with God and enough of us do that and get on that wall and say, Lord, here am I, send me. I'm willing to stand for your law and have the courage, as Dr. Ben uh, Carson said, to stand up and push back and speak up and, and share these principles that we're learning. I would like to challenge you to begin to memorize these principles. I've memorized these 28 principles and they have risen up. And my hour of need, they've been like my best friends, these principles, and they allowed me to speak, uh, you know, in a way that really changes the spirit of the conversation when you can, you know, evoke some of these principles. So our homework, we've given you a lot of homework tonight. And also go back and reread what uh, principles three and four, because that'll help kind of sink in what we learned tonight. But next week, we will um, study principles five, six, and seven.